Welcome to the April 8th episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. And today's reading is 1 Samuel chapter 13 and 14. And hopefully you've already spent time in God's Word, so let's get started. Okay, so let's look at 1 Samuel 13. Let's begin with, obviously, verse 1. It says, Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. Um, So we need to talk about something in this verse. Um, The original numbers in this verse have not been preserved uh, in the original Hebrew. It literally reads, with what has been preserved for us in the Hebrew text, it literally reads, Saul was one year old when he became king, and he reigned two years over Israel. And so when you look at the various translations, some of them may translate it a little bit differently because they're trying to make sense of the fact that he clearly was not one year old because we know from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2, that he was a young man. And so was he 21? Was was the 2 knocked out? Was the 3 knocked out? Was he 31? Um, so, so anyway, I just want you to know that that is missing. But also, it says that he reigned two years over Israel. Well, we know he reigned more than two years. So what is that meaning? Uh, it could mean that... Uh, you know, he reigned 42 years or 32 years. Maybe the first number is knocked out of that as well. Or it could mean that the events that we're going to read about in 1 Samuel 13 happens two years after he was, uh, you know, made the king of Israel. And so I'll, I'll leave you to, with that information so that if you want, you can kind of explore. But what I think is that it should read... Um, that Saul uh, was uh, either 21 or 31 years old when he became king, and in the second year of his reign over Israel, the events of 1 Samuel 13 happened. Okay, so it uh, it does seem that Saul assembled a standing army now. He previously just had an army where he said, hey, everybody come together, let's fight against the Ammonites. But now it looks as if he's creating a standing army, and he sends everybody home. So he keeps 2,000 for himself and 1,000 for his son, Jonathan. One of the things I want you to see as we look at the character of the uh, King Saul, the first king of Israel, not the best king that they could have, but God gave them the king that they deserved. Um, I would argue that God has given America the president, not just the president, but the presidents, the last few that we have deserved. Maybe three, the last four or five. But, um, but anyway, I think God gave Israel what they deserved. And we continue to see his self-centeredness and insecurity, um, especially as he confronts the Philistines now. And so observe in the following verses who actually attacked the Philistine. I'm going to read to you verses 3 and 4. Observe who actually attacked the Philistines and then who claimed credit for it. Okay, Listen to who attacked, but then listen to who claimed credit. 1 Samuel 13, verses 3 and 4. Jonathan attacked the Philistine garrison in Gibeah. And the Philistines heard about it. So Saul blew the ram's horn throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine garrison. And Israel is now repulsive to the Philistines. Then the troops were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. 
we see in verse 3 that Jonathan was the one that attacked. But in verse 3 and 4, Saul blew the horn and said, I'm the one who attacked. I'm telling you, Saul is an insecure leader. He's an insecure leader. And one of the things about an insecure leader is they will almost always take credit for what those under him or her are doing that is successful. Now, of course, if somebody under them does something unsuccessful, then they're going to place the blame on that person. But if that person under them does something well, then they're going to claim credit for it. Don't be like that. (laughs) And uh, if you think you're not a leader, all leadership is is influence. If you are influencing even one person, regardless of whether you've got a title, you're a leader. Uh, We read also that the Philistines assembled at Michmash, and this is where Saul had uh, was originally positioned, and so apparently the Philistines had pushed back without a fight, pushed back the Israelites, and in fact pushed them toward the Jordan River at the northern part of the Dead Sea to a city called Gilgal. And uh, we observe that the, the soldiers under Saul's leadership are terrified. They're terrified, but we aren't told that Saul was doing anything to rally their courage. Just listen to the text. Listen to verses 6 and 7. The men of Israel saw that they were in trouble because the troops were in a difficult situation. They hid in caves, in thickets, among rocks, and in holes and cisterns. I mean, this is embarrassing. The the army of the Lord of, of hosts are hiding anywhere they can find a place to hide. They're terrified. Verse 7, some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. You know, they were going across the river just to get away from the battle, just to go farther away from the Philistines. We're told at the end of verse 7, Saul, however, was still in Gilgal, and all his troops were gripped with fear. Saul was a horrible leader. Sure, he was tall, but he was also the guy who was hiding among the supplies at his own coronation. He is an example of what not to be. His people are terrified, and he is doing nothing. Um, remember what uh, Samuel told him, and, and this, is, this is an issue. This is something we need to think about in this chapter. Remember um, that uh, what Samuel told Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 8. Let me read this to you. This is a few chapters previously. 1 Samuel 10, 8 says this. Afterward, go ahead, Samuel said this to Saul, go ahead of me to Gilgal. And so three chapters later, Saul is in Gilgal. Samuel says in verse chapter 10, verse 8, I will come to you to offer burnt offerings and, sa- and to sacrifice fellowship offerings. Wait seven days, right? Wait seven days until I come to you and show you what to do. So Samuel said, go to Gilgal, wait seven days, and Samuel would show up and offer sacrifice to the Lord. So what did Paul do? Well, let's go back to 1 Samuel 13, 8 and 9. He waited seven days, right? So three chapters later, he's waiting seven days, just like Samuel said to do. He waited seven days for the appointed time that Samuel had set, but Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and the troops were deserting him. So Saul said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings, and then he offered the burnt offering. Instead of being a leader who trusted the Lord and obeyed the Lord's prophet, Saul took matters into his own hands. His men were deserting him because he wasn't encouraging them and was not instilling hope and courage in them. Instead, he appears to have been doing nothing, which put him in a situation where he felt that he had to disobey and offer up the sacrifice. Saul offered the sacrifice on his own. 
And then Samuel the prophet showed up. We're told in 1 Samuel 13, he showed up, and it didn't take Samuel long to show that he was thoroughly upset. Some have speculated that Saul's sin was that he offered up a burnt offering on his own, and I don't think so. I don't think that was the sin. Because in 2 Samuel, in the next book, 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 25, we see that King David would offer up a sacrifice on his own, and it appears that God accepted his offering. So it doesn't seem as if the sacrifice itself was a sin for, for King Saul to do. Saul's sin seems to be that he didn't follow clear instructions given by the Lord through the prophet Samuel. Samuel was speaking on behalf of the Lord. He gave clear instructions to Saul, and Saul did not obey it. Instead of trusting and waiting patiently on the Lord, he took matters into his own hands. You know, hey, I'll wait on the Lord as long as I feel like I can afford it, but whenever the Lord doesn't show up in the time that I think that, uh, that he should and his prophet doesn't show up, then, then I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. He wasn't trusting the Lord. Our trust in the Lord really doesn't count when things are easy. It counts when things are hard. Listen to what Samuel said when he showed up. 1 Samuel 13, verses 13 through 15. Samuel said to Saul, You have been foolish. You've not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. See, Samuel was the one that gave him the command, but here he's saying that the Lord your God gave you this command. It was at this time that the Lord would have permanently established your reign over Israel, but now your reign will not endure. So Samuel already, maybe two years in to Saul's kingship, is saying that your, um, your reign and your family line, it's not going to endure. It's going to end. The Lord has found a man. Samuel says the Lord has found a man after his own heart. Now, Samuel doesn't know who this is. Samuel doesn't even know David's name. He's never been to Jesse's house. He doesn't know. The Lord hasn't revealed to Samuel who it is. But Samuel says prophetically, the Lord has found a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not done what the Lord commanded. Then Samuel went from Gilgal to Gibeah and Benjamin. Saul registered the troops who were with him, about 600 men. Whoa. <laughs> Saul now only has 600 men. He started off with 2,000, and Jonathan had 1,000. And so of Saul's troops... 1,400 men in his army deserted. But was it because of Samuel's delay? No, it was because of Saul's leadership, poor leadership. He could have inspired his men. He could have encouraged his men. He could have rallied his men, but he chose to do nothing and let things just happen. Now, Samuel has left, and the Philistines have created three raiding parties, so now it's getting even more difficult. Further, we're told that at the end of this chapter, the only ones in the Israelite army that had a sword were Saul and Jonathan. The Philistines had made sure that no metal worker was allowed to live within Israel so that the Israelites would have to go to the Philistines even to get their plows and things sharpened so nobody in Israel had a sword except Saul and Jonathan. The situation seemed dire, but trust in God, despite the circumstances, could accomplish great things. And we're going to see at the beginning of the next chapter what a trust in God can do in the spite of odds that are overwhelmingly against you. 
Okay, so 1 Samuel chapter 14, let's begin in verse 1 again. That same day, Saul's son Jonathan said to the attendant who carried his weapons, so this attendant did not have his own weapons, he carried Jonathan's weapons. Remember, only Jonathan and Saul had weapons, only they had spears. So Jonathan said to the attendant who carried his weapons, Come on, let's cross over the, to the Philistine garrison to the other side. However, he did not tell his father. And so the, uh, the sacrifice had been offered, but Saul was staying put. He wasn't moving. This, this kind of informs us of why Saul wasn't doing anything later on when Goliath was in the valley taunting the Israelites. Simply put, when trouble came, it paralyzed Saul. Yet his son wasn't content to sit still, so they had a job to do, so he got started. Let's read in verses 4 through 7. There were sharp columns of rock on both sides of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine garrison. One was named Bozes and the other Sinna. One stood to the north in front of Michmash and the other to the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the attendant who carried his weapons, Come on, let's cross over uh, to the garrison of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Nothing can keep the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. His armor bearer responded, Do what's in your heart. Go ahead. I'm completely with you. I'm telling you, fear is contagious, and so is courage. Jonathan's courage, because of his trust in his God, spread to his armor-bearer, even though his armor-bearer didn't even have his own sword. So how did Jonathan and his armor-bearer do? What, what, how, how, did they, how did they do as they went up against the Philistines? Look at verse 14. In that first assault, Jonathan and his armor-bearer struck down about 20 men in a half-acre field. And what we're told is Jonathan had his sword, Jonathan would cut him down, the armor-bearer would finish him off. <laughs> and so you have, in uh, verses 15 through 23, that terror is spreading in the Philistine camp. Part of it was Jonathan's surprise and courageous attack, and the other part was God putting gas on the fire of the Philistine fear. Saul's watchmen, well, of course they were just watching. Saul wasn't leading them to do anything. Saul's watchmen saw the Philistines in a panic, and they found out that Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not in their midst, so they went into battle. That was virtually one already. I mean, the other side is in chaos. They're, they're in a panic. And when the Israelite soldiers who had defeated who had um, actually defected to the uh, Philistines, and those who were hiding in caves realized that the Israelites were probably going to win this battle. They rallied their courage and fought for Israel. Once again, all it takes is one man or one woman with courage to spread courage to other people. It takes one person. Friend, that could be you. It could be you. And where did Jonathan's courage come from? I'm telling you that when you read in the text, a big part of his courage came from trusting in his God. Trusting in his God. Verses 23 through 46, uh, we see that uh, Saul's uh, weak courage has been rallied. 
Um, I mean, he's just, hey, let's go after and let's fight him. Well, he's he's feasting off of Jonathan's courage. Jonathan has already started the battle. Jonathan has already got the Philistines running around in chaos. And so Saul says, hey, let's go get him. Um, but in the emotional exhilaration of the moment, Saul made a stupid decision and put his troops under a rash oath. Once again, we realized this guy was not a good leader. Listen to 1 Samuel 14, verses 23 and 24. It says, The battle extended beyond beth and the men of Israel were worn out, at the, uh, out that day. So Saul placed the troops under an oath. So they were already worn out, but Saul then placed them under an oath. The man who eats food before evening, before I have taken vengeance on my enemies, is cursed. So none of the troops tasted any food. Before I have taken vengeance, once again, Saul is so stinking insecure. His son has already started this battle. His son has already got the Philistines on the run. And now Saul is acting like the big man on the block. He's joining the battle that his son already started and virtually won by throwing the Philistines into chaos. He's taking credit for what someone else did once again. The Israelite troops enter a forest and they saw there that uh, that there were honeycombs filled with honey, but they didn't eat it because of what Saul had said, even though they were already worn out when Saul swore them to that oath. But Jonathan, he didn't hear his dad's oath, and so uh, he went on and took his staff, dipped it into a honeycomb, put that honey in his mouth and his energy, you know, all the carbs and everything, the energy in there just rejuvenated him. And when he was confronted by someone who was just starving, who said, hey, your dad said we can't have anything to eat until we beat the Philistines, Jonathan stated that his father had messed up. He demonstrated in his words that his father was acting foolishly. And if he said if the troops had been allowed to eat, they could have defeated the Philistines even more decisively. And so Jonathan is someone who he's being courageous and he's calling a spade a spade. In this case, his dad is not really his dad. His dad is really his commander. And so he is speaking truth into a situation. Later that day, the Israelite troops were completely exhausted and famished, and we're told that they killed animals. Now, we don't know if they cooked them or not, but one of the things we do know is they did not properly drain them of blood before eating them, so apparently they were just quickly eating the food, and this was a violation of God's law. So... Saul showed up, said, hey, stop doing this. This is against the law. So he offered a sacrifice. He built an altar and offered a sacrifice. And he was just on an emotional high still from defeating the Philistines, and he wanted to continue. But when he sought the Lord, the Lord was silent. The Lord didn't answer. We don't know how he sought the Lord, and we don't know how the Lord would have spoken to him. But his interpretation was the Lord was silent. And so Saul interpreted that the Lord's silence meant that someone in his army had sinned. How he came to that conclusion, we don't know. Um, I'm telling you, a secure person, the first person they will check is themselves. They're secure enough to realize that maybe they messed up. Maybe they made a mistake. And so they're secure enough that they check themselves first. Is it something I did that has caused us? They're not questioning 
they're not perpetually questioning themselves, but they feel secure enough in themselves that if they messed up, they're going to own it and fix it. But Saul didn't do that. Uh, he assumed that it was someone in the military, someone in his army that had sinned. It wasn't him. It was one of them. Saul's always taking the credit for someone else's victory, but whenever there's a mess up, he's always blaming somebody else. Um, and so when he, uh, so he went looking for someone to blame. Look at 1 Samuel 14, verses 38 and 39. Saul said, all you leaders of the troops, come here. Let's investigate how this sin has occurred today. As surely as the Lord lives who saves Israel, even if it is because of my son Jonathan, he must die. Not one of the troops answered him. Well, not one of the troops answered him. It, the word had probably gotten around. It was Jonathan, but they didn't answer. I'm telling you, this is big talk for Saul. Saul doesn't even know how big or how small the offense is. He doesn't even know if someone's sin has caused God's silence. He certainly doesn't believe he's done anything wrong. So he talks big and says he'll kill the person who sinned, even if it, using his words, even if it is because of my son Jonathan. I tell you, he is a small man talking big, and I suspect his troops thought it was totally misplaced and probably had a great deal of disrespect for this man as they continued to follow his leadership. And why in the world was he even bringing his son up? We're going to see that in just a second. And so he calls for the priest, and the priest Urim and Thummim. Apparently this is a black stone and a white stone, and it may be that they reached into their pocket, and if they pulled out a white stone or a black stone, it would be like you know heads or tails, and whichever one it lands on, you've already determined what that means. I think that's how the Urim and Thummim worked. And it was to be determined uh, that uh, the Israelite army was on one side and Saul and Jonathan, his son Jonathan, were on the other side. Who is it? And so it was determined that it was Saul and Jonathan that supposedly were guilty. Once again, we don't even know that the Lord was involved in this. 1 Samuel 14 verses 42 through 45 says this, Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was selected. Once again, he was selected, but we don't know that the Lord is doing this. Verse 43, Saul commanded him, tell me what you did. Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the end of the staff I was carrying. I'm ready to die. Saul declared to him, may God punish me and do so severely. If you do not die, Jonathan, why in the world would Saul want to kill his son? Why in the world would Saul want to kill his son? I believe the answer is in verse 45, the very next verse. But the people said to Saul, Must Jonathan die? He accomplished such a great deliverance for Israel. I think that's the answer. He, Jonathan, accomplished such a great deliverance for Israel. No, as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground, for he worked with God's help today, the people said. So the people redeemed Jonathan, and he did not die. I think Saul was so insecure, so insecure, that even when his son was beginning to demonstrate that he was a far more courageous person and, a far, and far more competent in leadership, 
that Saul was threatened by his own son and was willing to use him eating honey as an excuse to kill him. Um, there's going to be an occasion later on where Saul tries to kill his son actually tries to kill him. He's going to try to kill David. We're going to read about that. I think this man is so insecure that he's going to develop some serious mental disorders as we follow this story. And then in the last part of this chapter, verses 47 through 52, we read a list of Saul's military campaigns, but we also realize that the campaign... Um, that the campaigns we know about typically included some hero other than Saul who led the way. The Bible does say in verse 48 that he, Saul, fought bravely and defeated the Amalekites and rescued Israel from those who plundered them. It says he fought bravely, but it frequently seems that Saul's bravery was borrowed from someone else who stepped up to lead the way. I'm telling you that uh, God gave Israel the leader that Israel deserved. I'm telling you, as I read about Saul, I can't wait for the next leader to come on board, King David. But it's going to be just a little bit before he takes up the kingship. But uh, very soon, we're going to be reading about David as he is selected by Samuel and then as he begins to make his way into um, the... Uh, air, the uh, make his way into the, the the relationship that he had with King Saul as he played his harp and and did all sorts of other things. So this story is just going to continue to get better and better. Let's pray, Lord Jesus. We come to you and we realize that uh, just as Saul did not have things easy. Um, we realize that oftentimes our lives are not going to be easy, not going to be easy. And just as Lord Saul um, demonstrated fear and, uh, and a lack of trust in you that led to um, a lack of courage and even that, that caused some other problems and the way he related to people and how he responded to difficulties. Lord, we know that there are times when we behave in ways that are very similar because we don't trust you when our life gets hard. But Lord, I pray that as we look at King Saul and as we see him, it's easier to see sin in others than it is in ourselves. And so, Lord, I pray that as we see him and see how just appalling it is to see someone who is so stifled by fear because he doesn't trust in you and he's so self-centered and he's not God-centered that it created such problems, not only in his life, but in the lives of all of those around him, everybody around him. Lord, I pray that we would see that sin and, and be so appalled by it that we would despise it in ourselves and we would determine that we are going to be God-centered and not self-centered and that we are going to trust and not doubt in you. We pray this in the name of the only one who can enable us to live this desire out. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I hope today's episode has helped you to understand and enjoy God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
The Enjoying the Bible podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Check us out at fbcpolkcity.com. See you tomorrow.